right, time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Here it is, February 5th, 2009. Uh, this program's going to be packed. That's all I can say. I'm looking at uh, Poncho John. <laughs> Those of you who do not know, uh, John is a uh, an avid Dodger fan. Yes, yes. And his uh, being a Dodger fan is more deep and more extensive than even my Dodger fandom. And uh, I was down in San Diego today and uh, found a little shop that was going out of business. That uh, well, how do I put it? They they had this wonderful Dodger poncho. <laughs> so I had to get it for John, and I got it for really cheap. Well, it's what every Dodger fan needs in their wardrobe. Is a poncho? Oh, a Dodger poncho. A Dodger poncho. So I you know, I didn't think you would have one of those. If it was just like a jacket or something like that, I would have thought you probably had one. I've got a couple jackets. Yeah, but okay. you don't – this is your first Dodger poncho. My first poncho. <laughs> <laughs> now you need a sombrero. <laughs> anyway. Do they have blue ones of those? Blue sombreros? Yeah. You know, I'm sure somebody somewhere has a Dodger poncho. Uh, uh, a Dodger sombrero. sombrero. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah <I'm> getting old. <laughs> I think I need to take some of those pills to help your memory. And uh, just discouraging things falling apart, not working the same. Yeah, growing old is just oh so fun. Anyway, uh, we got some great listener email today, and we're going to play Obama's uh, speech at the National Prayer Breakfast uh, in its entirety, and we're going to comment. Um, now, this is not necessarily about politics. Uh, it just so happens that Barack Obama steered into a religious speech, and uh, some of the things he said, let's just say they were disturbing to me, and uh, we're going to pick it apart. Um, we're going to continue today in Mark chapter – we're going to finish up Mark chapter 6, get into Mark chapter 7. Got a news story about an Episcopal uh, bishop – uh, an Episcopal bishop nominee who was also an ordained Buddhist. Yeah, I. John just looked at me. What? <laughs> yeah, that's going to be fun. And then, uh, Lord willing, I know you all are dying for this because we didn't get to it yesterday. The Dark Knight sermon. John, I you're, can't you're do. You're finally there, huh? Yeah, I, I know you didn't want me to do this without you. You really wanted me to do this Dark oh, Knight sermon. Oh man. <laughs> I got Lane Chaplin sent me a, an email says, "Hey, I got a really really good sermon. It's it's like that Jeff Noblet one. You want me to send you the link? I'm all, yeah, absolutely." And he said it to me. I, I got the feeling like, please play a good sermon. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm trying to be relevant here. So <laughs> anyway, starting off with a little bit of humor. Uh, there's a website out there called the Sacred Sandwich. If you have not visited the Sacred Sandwich, I highly recommend it. They have a very, very um, bizarre religious sense of humor, and they are generally right. They, <laughs> I, In fact, I spent a little bit of time on their site yesterday. It's been a few months since I've been there, and I was cracking up. They've got a, uh, they've got a spoof advertisement up at the Sacred Sandwich for uh, Bar- Barbie's Dream Church. Rather than her Barbie Dream House, it's Barbie's Dream Church. It includes a, a Starbucks, a game room, a baptistry slash jacuzzi. And, uh, and here's what it says. Hey, girls, with a new degree from Fuller Seminary in a wicked sense of fashion, Church Growth Barbie is creating 40 days of style with her very own dream church. And that is sure to pack them in. Sure, Barbie and Ken are living together. 
But in a totally cool church like this one, who cares? <laughs> and this got Barbie kind of poking her head up out of the corner of the ad says, do you have a broken nail? Jesus can help. <laughs> and then there's a little, little uh, thing at the bottom that says, Dream Church comes ready to use as shown. Biblical instructions not necessary to build. Oh, yeah. What good, good sarcastic humor. Some good parody always has a good nugget of truth in it. This is just wicked humor, and it's right on. All right, let's see here. Let's get to our emails. Um, Roxy Lee uh, wrote in, and she agreed with you about Big Bird being the Christ figure if oh. we were to do a Sesame Street uh, sermon series. Uh, Roxy Lee says, uh, John is absolutely correct. The God figure in Sesame Street is Big Bird, and here's why. Psalm 91, verse 4, it says, uh, he will cover you with his feathers. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. See, God is is Big Bird. That's right. Isn't that, Roxy Lee, that's very clever, actually. <laughs> John, you look disgusted. I'd really like to see some more emails about uh, about this. You know, send in your email suggestions. If if one of these seeker sensitive purpose driven guys were to actually do a sermon series on Sesame Street, um, yeah, who's wh- Judas? Who would be Judas? Well, who would be the Christ? Give us the biblical uh, characters that uh, the Sesame Street folks would. Um, apply to and the biblical reasoning behind it just like roxy lee because apparently big you know god is a big big bird a big yellow obnoxious bird <sighs> that's funny yeah all right let's see here okay uh got an email from andy i don't know where andy's from he said um well aj got a hang on a second here andy writes he says uh uh mr roasting they're just amazing. They keep coming in like that. Some of the some of what McLaren was saying is half true. Now, talking about McLaren, you you, you had to leave early yesterday. You didn't get a chance to hear Brian McLaren kind of attacking systematic theology. And uh, Andy points out the fact that some of what Brian McLaren was saying is half true, but that means it's a half lie, which is probably more dangerous than a flat-out lie. And let me stop the email right there. That's exactly right. Um the most dangerous errors are not the ones that are blatantly wrong. Although you're always going to have people who will follow things like that. For instance, I mean, you have the Mormon church teaching that uh, the law of eternal progression, as God once was, you know, as man once was, God, God, wait a second here, as God is, no, as man is, God once was. As God is, man can become. So the the whole purpose behind the, uh, Mormon religion is for you to abide by the uh, the ordinances and rules and and morals of the Mormon Church. Follow their program. Do it in in a worthy enough manner, and you can become a god. Now out, it's outrageous. Okay, and there's a lot of Mormons out there. What's funny is is that they actually don't tell you that when they come to the door the first time. It's not like you got the Mormons knocking on the door going, "Hey, would you like to become a god?" <laughs> no, they don't do that. Instead, what they do is they try to look and act and talk like American evangelical Christians. They want to blend. They don't want to stick out. And they, in fact, they don't hit you with that whole God thing until you are, they've got the hook through your nose and there's no way for you to back out or for you to back out would mean some kind of personal loss for you. Anyway, so, uh, but the thing is, is that uh, half-truths are really dangerous Subtle lies are the most dangerous, and I think Brian McLaren is probably the best out there 
Um, Rick Warren is close second um, as far as stating stuff that is like half true or mostly true or it's truthy. Okay, and you sit there and go, okay, that's right, but it's wrong. You know, it, it, in, in a situation like that, you always have to come up with the analogy of basically thinking, okay, wait a second. The truth doesn't seem to be right here. It's as if the truth is being used as a, as a piece of bait. You, you want to look for the hook because that's the whole idea as far as deception is concerned. By the way, uh, God and Jesus Christ doesn't go fishing with hooks and lures. Okay. Uh, the fishing that that Christ encourages is net fishing. And I want you to think about this. I know that, you know, you're sitting there going, well, fishing's fishing. No, Christians don't engage in deceptive practices when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. And so when you go out and you preach repentance of sins, you preach the law to drive people to their knees in despair of their own righteousness, and then you preach the gospel to comfort and offer the forgiveness of sins and call men to repentance and faith in Christ— you are literally net fishing. You're casting out a big net and letting God, letting the net do the work. What's the net? The gospel, right? Let God's word do what God's word does. Just go and cast the net. You don't need to engage in deception. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to hide the hook or or be subtle or do the bait and switch or any of that kind of stuff. Go and proclaim it. Why? Because these are God's words. God's word is going to accomplish what God's word is going to accomplish. Otherwise, it's just not God's word. It's something else. Okay? We've been given a message. Go and proclaim it and let God the Holy Spirit use his word and the proclamation of the gospel to to create faith through the means of grace, save people, bring them to repentance and faith, and bring them into the kingdom. You and I can't, by our own power, bring anybody into the kingdom of God. None of us can. Not me, not you, not nobody. No how. Our methods don't do it. God builds his kingdom through the methods and the means that he has established. Right? Okay? They're his tools. They're his weapons. They're his seeds. They're his means. They're his. They're his. Right? Okay? Got to keep that in mind. And all this was a response just to the first sentence. I think I need to go buy a soapbox. Anyway, we continue. <laughs> I agree that one of the things that the modern church and Christian families have failed to do is educate our Christian children in church history, the story from creation to us. Absolutely. American evangelicalism in its pragmatism about you know wanting to be hip and what have the latest and greatest and follow the, the, the fad that's occurring now um, has got this really short memory. It's as if Christianity began the day that you made a decision for Jesus. And no, it didn't. It did not begin the day that you made a decision for Jesus, which, by the way, you didn't do. God made a decision for you. But we'll, we'll talk about that <laughs> another time. Um, as a result of it, the saying is true. Those who don't understand history, don't know his history, are doomed to repeat it, which is one of the points that's coming up here in uh, AJ's um, uh, email. He says, as a father of an almost three-year-old looking to home educate, I'm trying to educate myself so that I can educate my son. The thing that that the thing is that if we were educated in church history, we would see that there is nothing new under the sun, and a lot of these heresies coming out of the emergent church have come up and been shot down by greater men that have gone before us. To which I say, Amen. You're absolutely right. In fact, a study of Christian church history 
um, anti-Nicaean fathers, even you know uh, af- after Nicaea, is a study in how the church addressed and refuted heretics. It's one of the major themes in the writings of the early church fathers is the correcting and rebuking of errors that creep in. Okay, why? Because the as Luther pointed out, uh, the human heart is an idol factory. They make they make cars in Detroit. The human heart makes idols. Okay, so every and so a lot of the stuff that's coming around right now, the heresies that we're experiencing, they aren't new. They might slap a new label on it. It's postmodern, and people go, oh, "Wow, that's hip and relevant. That's now," and it's just the same old, worn out wrong heresies shined up you know it's i'm sorry the uh, the the analogy i i like to use is it's like putting lipstick on a pig doesn't really help much because it's still a pig anyway somebody's going to email me regarding that and say that was mean (laughs) you called the emergent church doctrines pigs (laughs) yes i did get over it all right, so we continue. All right, so this, all right, so a lot of this. Yeah, okay. All right, here we go. I'm sorry that was. He apologized, by the way. He says, um, "Okay, let me read the sentence so that I, we can get his apologies." If we really understood the overarching narrative of the church, we would have take we would take the emergence to the stake as heretics. That's what he says. He says, but he says, "I'm sorry that wasn't very politically correct of me." No, it wasn't, and that's okay. In politically incorrectness is okay on this program. In fact, we recommend it. Um, I, I I have a question for McLaren. How do we understand this narrative of church history if we reject the last 500 years? Right. Okay. And really, if the church cleans house every 500 years, why should we keep any of it? Okay. This I man, this idea that we have a that we have a rummage sale every 500 years is ridiculous. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not one dot or chittle or iota of his word will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. Truth is true regardless of what time that you live in. Did you know that back in the days of Noah, two plus two still equaled four? I would have guessed that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Isn't that wild? And in the time of David, two plus two equaled four. There you go. Time of Jesus, two plus two equaled four. Time of the of Augustine, uh, the now much maligned by the emergent church, Augustine, who that evil man who brought the doctrine of original sin into the church. No, Paul did actually the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, did you know that during his time, two plus two equal four? Charlemagne, you, you familiar with the reign of Charlemagne? You know, in France during the medieval period, it's like one of the few golden ages of civilization during the dark er, er, ages. Um, two plus two equal four. Then too, yeah, it still does. Truth doesn't change. We're not called to proclaim the latest and greatest way of doing truth. We're called to proclaim the truth. Who is Jesus? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? So there's, I'm sorry, but the emergent church reminds me of Flip Wilson's church of what's happening now. It's just the latest and greatest heresy. Anyway, he says, I really, and really, if the church uh, cleans house, why should we keep any of it? I have a brother who's getting caught up in this stuff, and I really wish I could do something to show him how dangerous it is, and uh, do you have any suggestions? Um, AJ, yeah. Here's the deal. You need to do the tough work. You need to understand. You need to probably get some books out there that refute um, some of the major claims of the emergent church movement. 
But I wouldn't start with there. Get yourself grounded in God's word. Get a good systematic theology, okay? Get a good systematic theology and understand what the doctrines of the church teach, okay? Why do I say that? Well, um, Dr. Walter Martin uses an analogy, which, by the way, I happen to live, which was interesting, uh, that uh, when when they train bankers on how to spot counterfeits, they don't... There's a million different ways to make a counterfeit. There are a bazillion different combinations that people can come up with. Okay, so the way you learn to spot a counterfeit is by making yourself so familiar with the real thing that a counterfeit you would spot it immediately. I happen back, and this is way I'm going to date myself. Okay, when my wife and I first got married, we lived in Seattle, and I worked for a bank that was sold to I forget who. But uh, it was a startup bank at the time that I was working at. I worked at 1111 Third Avenue in uh, Seattle, Washington, downtown. It was it was a great gig. It was a good job. I really loved it. And you know, I got really got in on the ground floor. They they started with two branches, and I moved from Rainier Bank, which I think was bought by Bank of America eventually. Why am I talking about the corporate side of this? I don't know. <laughs> it's my MBA speaking. Anyway, I I. I it was transferred from Rainier Bank to work for Pacific Northwest Bank at the time that it was starting up, and it was exciting. It was my. It was the first time I was working in a startup company, and um, it was great. I knew the CEO, saw him every day, and as a teller in a small bank that was just starting out, I had opportunities that other people didn't have. Okay, if I worked at, if I had stayed at Rainier Bank on Lake Union in Seattle, then, you know, you know, tellers, you know, they're a dime a dozen. But because that was a small corporation that I worked for, they actually sent me a couple of times to go. And, uh, you know, I actually got to sit in on a meeting uh, regarding talking about, you know, who are the who are the criminal types, the people to be watching out for the schemes that were going down in Seattle. And they taught me how to spot counterfeits. One of the things that I got to, to learn was how to spot a counterfeit as a teller. And you know how they taught me how to do it? No, it was boring and it was ridiculous. <laughs> I got to work with only new money. Ugh. And new money is so ridiculously hard to count because it sticks. I like I like older bills. And the reason why I like older bills is because you can count those suckers out fast, right? Not new money. New money is is like it has like a sandpaper grittiness to it. But you work only with the with the right thing. They teach you. All about how money is the the paper is created. It's not paper, by the way. It's cotton. Okay, um, it's and it's pressed at a very high compression rate. There's blue and red threads in it, and there was you know at, this was before they had a lot of the security features they now have in in money uh, in the bills. But uh, I mean, they it was all about learning about how they make the real thing, and then you got to handle the real thing. In oh, man, and that was ridiculous. Um, you know, dealing with a bunch of new bills. Well, funny enough, um, you know, as a teller, I actually ran into a couple of counterfeit bills. And you know what happened? I didn't even have to look at them. Didn't even have to look at them. As I would, as I would count out somebody's money, as soon as I touched it, I knew it was counterfeit because I became so familiar with the original. And we as Christians have to do the same thing. You want to learn how to help your neighbors, help your family members who are being sucked up and stuff. Do the work 
of rightly getting into God's word and learning how to rightly divide it, understanding what sound doctrine is, and make yourself so familiar with the Christian faith and what it is in that truth that, first of all, you protect yourself. Then, then from that foundation, learn the unique characteristics of the viral heresy that is infecting the body of Christ and learn how to counter it. There's good books that are out there that will teach you how to do that. And maybe what I can do, uh, AJ, is send you a couple of book recommendations so that you can, uh, you know, uh, places where you can start uh, in over. But uh, I would recommend, uh, you know, as, as a follow on to that, again, uh, Christianity and Liberalism by Great J. Gretchen Machen. We have it for sale at Pirate Christian Radio in our bookstore. So if you go to piratechristianradio.com, click on store. Uh, Jay Gretchen Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, is available as an ebook. So uh, when you purchase it, we send you a link. Uh, now that our system is working right again, we send you a link that allows you to download it. I recommend reading that book on top of it. But spend the majority of your time in good orthodoxy, understanding what the Christian faith is. And then Jay Gretchen Machen's book will give you some of a foundation for dialoguing or at least understanding the errors of the emergent church because the emergent church is just postmodern liberalism as opposed to modern liberalism. And the stuff that he talks about in his book, the arguments that he brings to bear are just as valid today as they were then. So anyway, great email, AJ. All right. Um, Nick writes, he says, uh, when Osteen said to open your mouth wide and God will fill it, and I've said he was going to fill it with whipped cream because, you know, <laughs> strange memory. Okay. Um, he claims that this is from Psalm chapter 81, verse 10 from the NASB. He says, I the, I, the Lord your God, am your God. I, the Lord, am your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Uh, that's uh, from... Um, uh, Psalm eighty one ten. The important thing is, is that Osteen in that sermon, if you can call, what do you, a sermon is not even the right term for that thing. Uh, the uh, you know how to, what was the name of that thing about you know learning how to receive better or something like that? Uh, yeah yeah. It wasn't a sermon. It, and it, when he used verses, he took them out of context and wove them into his doctrine, his ideas. You know, and so you know, rather than actually telling you what God's word said, he used God's word to buttress and support his heresy. And that's why we always say context, context, context. Good. That's always a good rule. All right. Okay, got this email from uh, Ryan Akers. He was a pastor at uh, Warrington Wesleyan Church in Warrington, Missouri. He writes, uh, Chris, I love your program. Your podcast is the first thing I check out in the morning when I come into the office. You have provided your listeners with a great education on churches and pastors who are not preaching the gospel message accurately. Pastors today absolutely seem worried about being relevant. Pop psychologists uh, giving shock value for media attention and have a desire to become rock stars, as you say. Yeah, it, it, that's really kind of the flavor of what's happening. These, these guys are almost they're, they're frustrated rock stars. They, that would have been their first pick. You know, I, I look at somebody like a Perry Noble or a Stephen Furtick or a lot of these guys. I'm thinking I could see these kids, you know, see them as kids, you know, 14, 15, 16 year olds playing in a garage band and wanting to be, you know, the next big thing. And somehow that didn't pan out. And so they decided to start a church and, and then become a rock star that way. 
and they're just as salacious as these rock stars. Anyway, with, like, with with entourages and everything. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Stephen Furtick has an entourage. Uh, security details, but better way of putting it. And uh, you know, what's, uh, what's really funny is is that uh, I'll, annou- I'll announce this for the first time. We're we're going to be moving Pirate Christian Radio. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, John knows that because well, you know, John works here. Um, we're moving Pirate Christian Radio to the Midwest. Okay, and one of the reasons why we're doing that is because uh, we feel that it would be irresponsible for us to stay in California with the economy being the way it is. Pirate Christian Radio does not make enough money for us to live the lavish life of. <laughs> In a coastal town, so we're moving it to the Midwest. And what's really funny is is that where we're moving to puts me within driving distance of, like, Perry Noble's church and Stephen Furtick's church if they have conferences and stuff like that. Perry Noble uh, it has a conference coming up, and it's only $59 to attend. Did you know that? And I'm sitting there going, I think I want to go. <laughs> I think I want to go and take the Pirate Christian Radio Mobile and park it in the most obnoxious parking spot possible at that event. Wouldn't that be fun? Shows you what, how I think. Chris needs therapy. All right, we continue. Okay. So he says uh, they be, uh, they have a desire to become rock stars. As you say. My question for you is who are some pastors and churches out there who are getting it right? Do you see pastors in our country who maybe look like these other churches where they're big, have catchy sermon series and videos and all that other jazz, but they're accurately preaching God's truth? Now, that's a good question, okay? Um, What I would say is this, when it comes to pastors, I think it's the unsung guys. It's the guys who aren't on my radar screen, the guy who has the small congregation who faithfully opens up God's word and preaches long gospel on any given Sunday, regardless of the denomination. I'll be the first to tell you that the gospel is not limited to Lutheranism. Uh, And I would say this also, there's a lot of really bad churches in the LCMS. Okay. I've been to a few of them uh, and they they seem to be preoccupied with becoming purpose driven or um, worse. um, How do I put it? There's nothing better than a, than a congregation that really, really does the liturgy well. And there's nothing worse than a congregation that does it badly. (laughs) Sat through both. But for me, it's not whether or not they do the liturgy well or bad or whether or not they, even if it's contemporary music as opposed to traditional music. The issue always comes back to, is Christ being proclaimed? And I'll tell you this. I've I've listened to sermons from guys who who are not Lutheran, who um, that... For the most part, they're not very well known, but they preach the gospel Sunday after Sunday. There's a there's a church not too far from here um, in Southern California, and that church is one that I don't generally recommend people to go to. But I've listened to many of the sermons by the pastor there, and I think he's a closet Lutheran. Okay, the one thing he does right is he ex- he, he he does good expository preaching, and somehow he does law and gospel right without really being educated uh, by Lutherans on law and gospel. And he's not even reformed, but if he is reformed, he's a closet reformed guy. But every single one of his sermons somehow steers, you know, he, he actually exegetes the word, does it expositorily, does law and gospel correctly and exalts Christ. Now I don't agree with him regarding his, his view of the sacraments, but who cares? 
Okay, and there are people who I've 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 recommended this this gentleman's church for just because of the preaching there. But I tell them if he ever stops preaching Christ and him crucified for your sins, then you need to leave. Okay, the issue that we've got to get away from really is the the argument has been um, contemporary versus traditional. It's been uh, that's not even the right argument. Okay. The church I attend, we have a service called the Gift Service, okay, and they they get this, they have a band, okay. But you know what's important about this sermon, the service though, is that all of the songs, even though they're done performed by a band, it's not really a performance. They're, they're played by a band. The band is in the back of the church. They're not in the front of the church putting on a show, okay. The music, it it's still a liturgical service, and the music there is to serve the gospel. And to and even though they're contemporary songs, uh, the settings are contemporary. They preach doctrine, and we're and they sing and exalt the great doctrines of the Christian faith. So, uh, the style is not the issue. It's always the substance. Always, always, always the substance. So, when, what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take our first break, and when we get back, we'll continue talking about this particular thing. But. So, folks, when you go out and evaluate a church, don't evaluate it based upon surfacey things like style. Look at the teaching and the doctrine and what's being said, sung, spoken, exalted, and proclaimed. That's really going to be your better basis for determining whether or not this is a church where you should be. Okay? Now... Uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, uh, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, and we will be right back. Good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. 
Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. All right, we're back, and you are listening to Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we need your help to pay our bills. We're doing our part by cutting our costs, keeping our salaries down, moving to snowbound middle Midwestern states... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it takes to keep this just keep uh, this program up and running, we're willing to do it. Short of moving to Antarctica, I don't know if that's yeah. cheaper. I, I don't think they can call you dude anymore. It really? Yeah. Because I won't be here, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I have to give up my dude title. Yeah, the dudeness is gone. Which is a great line from <laughs> the, big, the Big Lebowski. Okay, the, the dudeness. The dudeness. Okay, all right. <laughs> anyway, you can support us at <laughs> dudeness. All right, uh, you can support. <laughs> Uh, I, I I know what is what is chick gonna call me if she can't call me dude? <laughs> hey man, hey man. Hey oh man. no, I think she's gonna be very discouraged and disappointed about this. Anyway, um, you could support us a couple of ways. Number one, you can uh, log on to fightingforthefaith.com dot com and click on the donate now button. That button allows you to pay via credit card, and uh, that's that's a quick and simple way to do it. And if you would like to do a more traditional way and would like to send a check, have a paper trail, I completely understand that. I'm a little bit paranoid that way myself. You can help us out by sending a check to Fighting for the Faith at Post Office Box 791, SJC, or San Juan Capistrano, California, 92693. All right, uh, getting back to this issue, um, the answer to the question, now, there was another part of this question that was being asked about, you know, are the churches that are doing it right? Obviously, it, it, would, it would be gratuitous for me to say, well, yeah, actually, you know, uh, Pastor Hodel, my, my pastor does it right. Swirla does it right. Um, look at the guys, you know, like uh, Matt Harrison. Look at the guys like, uh, you know, and then start listing off a bunch of uh, Lutherans. Um, that, that's, the, you know, the answer to the question is, is that any pastor who is exalting Christ, preaching the gospel, uh, first of all, preaching the law to condemn you as a sinner and preaching the gospel, that person is one that I'll take that guy any day. Now, the thing is, is that if there's a guy out there who's actually preaching the law and preaching Christ crucified for our sins is the solution, that seriousness, that sobriety in handling God's word many times will have a person preclude, it'll preclude them from, you know, from their conscience of going out and doing the salacious marketing. Okay. Um, off hand, you know, I can't really think of um, really more than one preacher who I know preaches the gospel but also engages in salacious marketing. Mark Driscoll comes to mind, and I know he is a lightning rod lately. And it, it, it's discouraging. Uh, it's very discouraging for me regarding Mark Driscoll. And the reason why is because, you know, I've heard him so many times preach Christ crucified for our sins. He's an unashamed Calvinist. He really understands the doctrines of grace. And yet at the same time, his marketing and media team just has me sitting there going, whose team are you on? 
You know, do we need to be salacious in our marketing? Why can't we be sober instead of shocking? You know, and, you know, I don't know. It's it, it. So he's he's lately he's let me down. I'm 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 a little bit uh, upset with uh, with Mark Driscoll right now, just because he he's become the offense rather than the cross. And see, that's really the drawing line for me. Is when, if your marketing becomes the offense rather than the cross of Jesus Christ, your marketing's off base, because the gospel itself is already offensive, right? It's a stumbling block for Jews. It's it's foolishness to Greeks. Who are we to add into the mix? Just really, really offensive marketing that that the church really and so many people outside the church basically look at Christians and go. Why are these people trying so hard to be cool when they know they're not? <laughs> so anyway, yeah, but I agree with you, uh, Ryan, that uh, not everyone is going to become a high church Lutheran. That, and and that, I don't care. Okay. I, I will say this. Okay. There's nothing better than, than high liturgy, gospel-centered, Christ-centered, cross-focused church. Okay. That is liturgical. And the reason why I like the liturgical church has also to do with, with the fact that the liturgy itself is chock full of scripture and the gospel. And the service from beginning to end works from the concept that I'm not there to exercise my sacrifice of praise to God. No, it's called the divine service, which means God is the primary mover. God's the one who's the first actor. He's the one who gets the ball rolling, beginning with the with the announcement of the forgiveness of sins after I confess how miserable I am. And my response to that is gratitude and thanksgiving and praise. And so there's a rhythm and flow to the to the liturgy that begins with God. And it it really it, the the gospel is front and center. And even if you're if the pastor that you have is isn't the best communicator isn't the best orator um the liturgy so many times will make up for that it will actually protect you from from a bad pastor i mean i can almost sit through a really bad sermon in a lutheran church if they do the liturgy because in the liturgy i'm going to get the gospel and so um i think the liturgy was hammered out by men who were far wiser than I than I am, and it's it's it really really fo- focuses on Christ, focuses on the gospel, focuses on the means of grace, and protects you from bad preachers. You know, so there's nothing worse than a bad preacher in a church that has no liturgy because you're protected from nothing. <laughs> you don't get no gospel, no how, no way. So anyway, that's it's something to keep in mind. Anyway. He says, technology in our churches is here to stay. By the way, I um, want to point something out to you, uh, Ryan. I'm not against technology either. When I teach my Sunday school class, I use, I use uh, Keynote, which is uh, the Macintosh version of PowerPoint. There's nothing wrong with technology. Um, in case you're not familiar, um, <clears throat> we're using technology here to get this message out today. Uh, streaming on a internet radio station, that's technology. Uh, using Macintosh computers to... Uh, do our post-production work and post a podcast, that's technology. Again, technology is neutral. The question is, what are you filling the technology with? You know, Think of it as the technology. is It's a tool. What are you going to use it for? Are you going to use, are you going to use the tool to proclaim Christ and him crucified, or are you going to build a, a heresy bomb and destroy people with it? It's all in the content. 
Okay, substance, substance, substance. Stop looking at the surface. And, well, I, I'm not saying that Ryan's looking at the surface. But, yeah, any people do. So technology in our churches is here to stay. Catchy sermon series will be here for a while, I assume, and pastors will continue to preach in jeans and offer cafes in their churches. It's just the in vogue thing to do, you know. But we we just have donuts and coffee. <laughs> yeah. not, not not French fresh donuts. No, we we got the, the day old stuff at yeah. our church. Yeah. He says, but there has to be some who are doing all of that and still preaching the gospel boldly and accurately. Yeah, the answer, I'm sure there are, okay? But so many times when you are rightly handling God's word and you really, as a pastor, are doing the sober job of, of preaching the word, preaching the law to condemn sins, preaching the gospel to comfort sinners and offer forgiveness of sins, it keeps you – I mean – I'm sorry, but for instance, if I were to go and visit President Obama, let's say that for some reason he were to invite me to come and visit him in the White House. That would be a wow. Yeah, that would be yeah. different. Um, but let's just say that it occurred. Okay? Yes, okay. Um, I wouldn't feel comfortable walking into the White House in shorts, a Hawaiian shirt, and flip-flops. Or actually my favorite, Birkenstocks. I like wearing Birkenstocks. Um, and no, I do not smoke pot. I know that <laughs> yeah, this during my MBA, I, I wore Birkenstocks to class one night and, um, my, uh, professor saw me coming in with the Burks and he's all, Oh, pot smoking sandals. Do you smoke pot? And, <laughs> and I'm all, no, <laughs> need to change to rainbow sandals. Right. Yeah. Rainbows are a San Clemente phenomenon. Let me tell you. If you don't know about rainbow sandals, I can't explain it to you now. So here's the deal. Going to visit the president, I would not show up in my Birkenstocks, my cargo shorts, and uh, uh, Tommy Bahama uh, shirt. That just is not – it doesn't even remotely sound right. Okay. Did you notice that Rick Warren wore a suit and tie at the uh, at Obama's in, uh, inauguration? I did notice that, Okay. Yes. He wasn't in his normal fare, okay? Even the mighty Rick Warren seems to understand, you know, the, the man who's known for his Hawaiian shirts, which he hasn't worn in a while, by the way. He he wears, like, the latest the hip styles. He's got those those dress shirts that, you know, that have, the, like, the patterns on, over on, over on the, one of the shoulders. Anyway, um, even Rick Warren wore a suit and tie for Obama's inauguration. I think that if you're really correctly handling God's word and you're as a pastor, you're soberly doing that job. Somehow that if you're really doing that, it's going to keep you from some of the excesses of this movement. So you understand what I'm saying? But, yeah, there's always somebody who's going to try to be trendy. But again, if we're going to do anything, let's look at the content. That's why this is this is a good forum for doing sermon reviews here at Fighting for the Faith because radio depend, is a little bit of a theater of the mind and it requires you to listen to ideas and you don't see this you don't actually see the pastors, you hear what they're saying. So it, it, you know, if Relevant Church decided to do a stripped naked ser- sermon series and the pastor was preaching in a speedo, you wouldn't see it and you would only hear what he was saying on the internet. You hear on the radio station and so we can judge his content. So that's what we do is we look at what people say. All right. We're going to switch gears here. And uh, it's going to take us more than the next 15 minutes. So it means we're going to go into the second hour with this. We're actually going to play Barack Obama's, uh, I want to say, sermon. Because when I was watching it this morning live, my daughter was I, – I had insomnia last night. And I was uh, – on the couch at six o'clock this morning, flipping channels, and my daughter comes down, and I was playing this live, and um, my daughter says, "Why is Barack Obama preaching a sermon?" That was the first thing out of her mouth. This is my seventeen-year-old, the one who says "woot." 
Okay, and uh, and I go, honey, this is not a sermon. This is a, this is just he's giving a speech at this prayer breakfast. But what's funny though is is while while Obama was delivering the sermon, I mean, speech. <laughs> what was funny is is that it had the cadence of a sermon, and there were times when he would make a point, he would stomp one of his feet. You can see him doing it, and you can hear it. It's interesting. And so if you have a chance to see the video online of, of uh, Obama's speech at this national prayer breakfast, you will watch about the middle of it. He starts making points, you know, and he 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 puts his foot down sharp enough that you can hear him. It's as if he's he, he's making to, to really emphasize what he's saying, to give a little punch to it, a little oomph. But there were things that Obama was saying that um, have me disturbed. And it has nothing to do with socialism. It has to do with the fact that, that Obama's steering into, uh, you know, uh, uh, into religious and theological territory. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to compare what he said, uh, well, and the ideas he's given to the Word of God, and and, and a little bit of history too. And, and we'll, we'll, you'll see as this unfolds where we're going to go with it. So. Without any further ado, I would like to present to you the President of the United States of America, Barack Obama, at the uh, National Prayer Breakfast and um, this morning, and which broadcast I, – I caught it on Fox News. Here we go. Thank you. Thank you. Please be seated. Thank you. Well, good morning. Good morning. I want to thank the co-chairs of this breakfast – uh, Representatives Heath Schuler and, and Vernon Ellers. And I will also want to thank uh, my good friend Tony Blair for coming today. Uh, somebody who uh, did it first and perhaps did it better than uh, I will do. Uh, he has been an example uh, for so many people around the world of what dedicated leadership can accomplish. And uh, we are very grateful to him. I want to thank my outstanding Vice President, Joe Biden. My wonderful members of the Cabinet, members of Congress, clergy, friends, and dignitaries from across the world. And Michelle and I are honored to join you in this prayer breakfast. I know this prayer breakfast has a long history in Washington, and faith has always been a guiding force in our family's life. So we feel very much at home and look forward to keeping this tradition alive uh, during our time here. It's a tradition that I'm told actually began many years ago in the city of Seattle. It was at the height of the Great Depression, and most people found themselves out of work. Many fell into poverty, and some lost everything. The leaders of the community did all that they could for those who were suffering in their midst. And then they decided to do something more. They prayed. It didn't matter what party or religious affiliation to which they belonged. They simply gathered one morning as brothers and sisters to share a meal and talk with God. And these breakfasts soon sprouted up throughout Seattle and quickly spread to cities and towns across America, eventually making their way to Washington. A short time after, President Eisenhower asked a 
group of senators, if he could join their prayer breakfast, it became a national event. And today, as I see presidents and dignitaries here from every corner of the globe, it strikes me that this is one of the rare occasions that still bring much of the world together in a moment of peace and goodwill. I raise this history because far too often we've seen faith wielded as a tool to divide us from one another. As Stop. Far too often we've seen faith being used as a tool to divide us from one another. Already we're off on the wrong foot. Okay. And as this little thing, as this little speech unfolds, you're going to see exactly what I'm talking about. But this is kind of the first shot. You know, this is, you know, he's just done his little history lesson. He's laid the foundation and now he's going to put up one of the walls. Wall number one, faith has been used to divide us. To which I would ask the question as a Christian, how can I be united with somebody who is not a Christian, at least in a religious endeavor, right? Because um, scripture says, what does light have to do with darkness? Nothing, right? So faith does divide us. And I, I would even go so far as to say that, that Islam is not a faith. It's a works-based religion. Other religions are not faiths. The Christian faith is the really on, the only faith because that faith is the way we are saved. So as we get into this little thing, he's going to make these statements. And one of the things you've got, it's a little subtle and it's a little difficult to, to pick them out. You have to listen to the words because the delivery doesn't change tone. He keeps the same tone throughout the whole speech. So you have to take the sentences apart and you have to do a little bit of parsing. So faith has been used to divide us. Faith, religion does divide us. I don't worship at a synagogue. I don't meditate and go, oh, and hope to become one with nirvana or Brahman, right? Now, he's going to address some of these, the facts that there's differences, but I want you to watch what he does with this. An excuse for prejudice and intolerance. Okay, let me back this up just a couple of seconds because I want you to Moment hear... of peace and goodwill. Okay, I want you to hear what he's saying here in, in its full context. First shot, religion is something that's, he's speaking of religion as something that's bad, or faith that's something as, that may be considered bad. And now, until he's come along, you know, people have done these things. Watch. I raise this history because far too often we've seen faith wielded as a tool to divide us from one another, as an excuse for prejudice and intolerance. Stop. Are there any, um, John, do you know of any prominent churches right now that uh, teach that uh, the African Americans are subhuman? No. Okay, no, I, I don't know of any prominent churches that teaches teach that African Americans are subhuman. When I hear the term prejudice, um, I think about the civil rights movement. I, you know, I, growing up, I, I, I was born in the year that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And so, you know, my early my early childhood still ha I still have some memories of like the tail end of the uh, the civil rights movement. I can remember hearing news stories about kids who had to be bused to different neighborhoods, you know, for you know because of you know the, the racial issues and making sure that people you know had good educations. 
hate so his first real reference here to religion is one where he's making an accusation that either sounds outdated or the my question is has he redefined the terms how are we defining prejudice and intolerance today in 2009 much different than the way we would have defined it back in 1968 right is prejudice and intolerance are these code words for um saying that homosexuality is a sin for declaring the exclusive truths of Christ. This is where it gets really slippery. And this is why I keep coming back to this thing. Words have meanings. What does he mean by far too often religion and faith is used to divide us and is an excuse for prejudice and intolerance? That's not the Christianity I know. Nor is it the Christianity I know through history because I'm a student of Christian history. It's the aberrant church, not the one that's orthodox, that preaches hatred and intolerance. Because the scriptures do not teach hatred and intolerance unless you are a liberal and you've redefined hatred and tolerance to mean exclusive truth claims where you claim that somebody who's following another religion is in error and bound for hell unless they repent and trust in Christ. But see, that's how things are being redefined today. We continue. It's a theme that, that uh, we heard from Tony. Wars have been waged. Innocents have been slaughtered. Stop. Listen to what he's doing. He's speaking of religion in a terrible way. Okay, and, and it's, apparently he's the solution to it. Um, I'm going to recommend another radio program. Uh, Andrew Deloach did a fine job. The uh, the uh, the Take the Stand. I'll, I'll put a link to his website because I don't think he has this uh, this week's edition up. The February third edition of Take the Stand is on the New Atheists, and Andrew Deloach does a fine job of uh, handling this issue. You know, I'm sorry, but there, there's this myth out there that somehow Christianity is responsible for for killing hundreds of millions of people, and it's not true, okay? And uh, let me – I don't want to steal Deloach's thunder, but I'm going to steal some of it. Um, folks, this idea that somehow religion is responsible for all of these atrocities, there are atrocities that Christian, that Christians have committed or people that have done in the name of Christ – we can, uh, let me give you some examples. The Salem witch, witch Trials, we all know about that, right? You know how many people died in the Salem Witch Trials? 35. Okay. Um, over 300 year, over a 300-year period in Europe when they were, were having witch trials, um, the, it's estimated that 300,000 people died in that. And it's terrible. Um, you know the Inquisitions? There was two major Inquisitions that the Catholic Church held uh, – 3,200 people died in the Inquisitions. Um, in the Crusades, about 300,000. Okay. Conser Basically, Christianity, it, Christian atrocities through all of Christian history um, are anywhere from 300, you know, from a total of 400,000 people to maybe 3 million at tops. Okay. And it's this is important. Nowhere in Christianity, in the, in the scriptures, does it teach people to hate, nor does it say to spread Christianity by the sword. 
in fact, spreading the sword is not a Christian you – know, spreading religion by the sword is not a Christian concept. It's a Muslim concept. It's actually taught in the Quran. But, um, you know, right out of the chute, already Obama is speaking about religion in these negative terms and passing along information about Christianity that's just not true. Um, let me just do a little – so – Total number of people who've died at the hands of Christians or people who call themselves Christians who were disobeying God's word and murdering people, anywhere from 400,000 to 3 million. Okay, Just in the 20th century alone, though, atheistic uh, governmental systems, Marxism in particular, uh, under Mao um, – I mean, there was, it, under Mao Zedong, about 61 million people died. Okay, um, in the Soviet Union from 1917 to 1959, 66 million people were murdered or starved. Uh, in Cambodia, under Pol Pot and uh, the Khmer Rouge, four uh, just in a four-year period, two million people were murdered or, or starved. In the 20th century alone. Atheistic Marxism is responsible for killing at least 155 million people. That's just in the 20th century. Through all of Christian history, maybe Christian atrocities are up to 3 million. But just in 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 less than 100 years, Marxists killed 155 million. Folks, there's something wrong here. When the president of the United States is passing along this misconception that somehow religion is responsible for atrocities or that Christianity is responsible for it, it's not. For centuries, entire religions have been persecuted all in the name of perceived righteousness. I just got word from John that 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 particular edition of Take the Stand... Uh, aired originally on November 18th, 2008. So it is in his archives, okay? So uh, I, I just happened to have heard it on February 3rd. I didn't listen on November 18th. So we'll put a link up to it today at fightingforthefaith.com because I want you guys to hear that. It's, uh, it's on the New Atheists. We continue. There's no doubt that the very nature of faith means that some of our beliefs will never be the same. We read from different texts. We follow different edicts. We subscribe to different accounts of how we came to be here and where we are going next. And some subscribe to no faith at all. But no matter what we choose to believe, let us remember that there is no religion whose central tenet is hate. Really? Uh, Obama, why is it that you have to use your bully pulpit to somehow tell us that? As a Christian, I'm offended. I don't need you telling me that. I know for a fact that the Christian message is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The central message of the Christian faith is the love of God demonstrated for us by the crucifixion, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Why is it that he's speaking about religion here as if we're the ones doing something wrong and promoting hate? The Christian religion doesn't promote hate. It promotes the love of God. Something's off. Something's wrong with this thing, and I'm offended by it to the hilt. 
we're going to take our second break, and when we come back, we will continue with uh, with uh, President Barack Obama's speech at the uh, National Prayer Breakfast. If you would like to email me, you can do so at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, and we will be right back. Sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. What do we do here at Fighting for the Faith? We dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment. We challenge the things that are being said right now in the name of Christianity, religion, or general spirituality that are being said in the media, on the internet, by Christian dignitaries, authors, people who have book deals, or if somebody steers into a religious discussion like President Barack Obama has just done, we take what people are saying and compare it to the Word of God. It's all about discernment. Why is it important? Because Jesus said in the last days, be sure that no one deceives you. That includes me, by the way. I am not immune from actually miscommunicating the truth or outright getting it wrong, biffing it. Okay. How do you know if I've, if I've said something that's not true? You compare it to God's word, even what I say. So we're in the middle of uh, listening to President Barack Obama's uh, speech that he gave at the National Prayer Breakfast, and already I'm I'm a little bit torqued. Okay, I'm a little upset because 
out of the shoot, he's speaking about religion in general as if somehow religion – we need to be reminded that uh, Christianity doesn't teach hate. By the way, um, how many of the airplanes on 9-11 were flown by Christian terrorists? That would be zero. Yeah, none of them. Yeah. Um, any – do we have to worry about Christian terrorist cells around the planet? Yeah, I don't know of any. I don't, I, don't know. I don't know of any Christian terrorist cells. Now, if you're part of a Christian terrorist cell, email me. I'd like to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, Christianity doesn't teach that. Okay? Muslim – Islam teaches jihad. Islam teaches conversion at the point of a sword. Christianity doesn't. So I don't need to be reminded as, oh, yeah, okay, because the natural tendency of religion is intolerance and hogwash. I absolutely deny the validity of the premises from which President Barack Obama is operating from in this speech. They're wrong. We continue. There's no God who condones taking the life of an innocent human being. This much we know. I'm so glad that he's correcting us on. I have, was under the impression that that Jesus Christ wants me to go out and kill innocent human beings. <sighs> we know that that's getting an applause. Really, you Christians out there, you should be you should be a little bit worried at this point. Because people are, are applauding at this as if somehow this is some great truth and it, finally somebody's being brave enough to say it. We know as well that whatever our differences, there is one law that binds all great religions together. And Okay, watch this. This is the law. And this is not what binds... Christianity is different. This is not what binds us to any other religion. It, it, the law of God actually just binds all men under sin. Well, listen to what he does here. Tony and I did not coordinate here. There's a little serendipity. You know, I get to thinking that we're probably not going to get to the Dark Knight sermon today. <laughs> Two days in a row, I've let people down. I have received emails from people. They want to hear the Dark Knight sermon. And I, this is, we've got to do this. This is preempting the Dark Knight. We'll, we'll have to do it tomorrow. Jesus told us to love thy neighbor as thyself. No, actually, let me correct you on that. Uh, Jesus was questioned regarding what the major, what were, what's the summary of the law? What's the most important commandments? And Jesus said, love your Lord, your God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and uh, love your neighbor as yourself. He was questioned regarding that. Jesus' message was not love your neighbor as yourself. That's the message of the law. All of the law and the prophets are summed up in love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus' message is the, the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's not the law. Jesus is not the new Moses. We continue. The Torah commands, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. In Islam, there is the hadith that reads, None of you truly believes until he wishes for his brother what he wishes for himself. Yeah, but what if you're suicidal? The same is true for Buddhists and Hindus, for followers of Confucius, 
and for humanists. Stop. Why is it that the President of the United States is somehow now an authority to tell us what we have in common with all the religions? And by the way, he's wrong. Christianity is the only religion on the planet that teaches salvation by grace alone through faith alone purely on account of what God did for us and that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh. No karma in Christianity. No, there is no karma in Christianity. Sorry. And the central tenet of the Christian church is not the golden rule. The golden rule, if anything, it shows us how wicked and sinful we are because we even messed that up. But here we have the, the President of the United States definitively and authoritatively speaking on the subject of religion, and he's wrong. It is, of course, the golden rule, the call to love one another, to understand one another, to treat with dignity and respect those with whom we share a brief moment on this earth. And show me which passage of Scripture and which Christian churches are out there teaching us to not show dignity and respect to our fellow human beings, our brothers in Adam. I don't know of any. It is an ancient rule, a simple rule, but also perhaps the most challenging. You know, Westboro Baptist probably falls into that category. You, you know what I'm talking about, the God-hates-homosexuals crowd? They're not even within Christianity. They're aberrant. We do, we don't, I don't embrace them. I consider them to be heretics. They're all law, no gospel. For it asks each of us to take some measure of responsibility for the well-being of people we may not know or worship with or agree with on every issue or any issue. Actually, I disagree with you again, President Obama. It is not God's law that tells me to take responsibility for my neighbor. It's the gospel. I am an ambassador of the kingdom of God. The message of Christ crucified for our sins. As such, my inspiration for helping my neighbor comes purely on account of God's mercy shown to me in Jesus Christ and me showing that same mercy to my neighbor. It's not the law. It is the gospel that brings life to the Christian message, to Christian sanctification and to Christian good works, not the law. Sometimes it asks us to reconcile with bitter enemies or resolve ancient hatreds. And that requires a living, breathing, active faith. Right. Okay. It requires a living, breathing, and active faith, which, I'm sorry, no one who is a Muslim has, no one who is a modern-day Jew has, no one who is a Buddhist has. No, you don't have a living, breathing, active faith apart from the one that is given to you as a gift from God through the preaching of the gospel when you are called to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. People outside of Christianity do not have living, breathing faiths. They have living, breathing, work righteousness regimes that they are trying to follow and better themselves by, but they don't have faith, and they don't have a living faith. They are trying to save themselves based upon their good works. Huge difference. And Barack Obama, who claims to be a Christian, should know better. It requires us not only to believe, but to do. 
to give something up. Not only to believe, but to do. Seriously. Who's out there advocating only belief? Anybody, any pastor who's actually exegeting God's word and preaching expositorily would never say, oh, just believe. No, they preach the good works that flow from faith, from that belief as well. Fruit of the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm not cutting this guy any slack. He's way off. Of ourselves for the benefit of others and the betterment of our world. In this way, the particular faith that motivates each of us can promote a greater good for all of us. Instead of driving us apart, our varied beliefs can bring us together to feed the hungry. Where have I heard this before? Oh, yeah, Rick Warren and the One campaign. And also it's the uh, deeds and not creeds. Yeah, deeds, not creeds. This, this is deeds, not creeds. Yeah, this is purpose-drivenism. Somehow we can unite with the world religions to solve poverty. I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. I, I got more important things to do, like preaching the gospel. And if, I'm, if I choose to show kindness and mercy to those in need, I'm doing it out of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, for the glorification of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I will not do my good deeds towards the, you know, the poor with a Muslim or a Buddhist because I don't want Allah or Buddha to get any credit. I want only Jesus Christ to be exalted and proclaimed through the acts of mercy that I do prompted by the, the gospel. I will not share Christ's glory with a false god. Clothe the naked. Comfort the afflicted. To make peace where there is strife and rebuild what has broken. To lift up those who have fallen on hard times. This is not only our call as people of faith, but our duty as citizens of America and our duty as citizens of the world. And it will be the purpose of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships that I'm announcing later today. The goal of this office will not to be, favor, be to favor one religious group over another, or even religious groups over secular groups. Good, because that's not the job of the president. I was wor worried about that, you know. <sighs> it will simply be to work on behalf of those organizations that want to work on behalf of our communities. And to do so without blurring the line that our founders wisely drew between church and state. So, uh, President Obama, I have a question for you. So when, when a faith-based group gets money to help the poor, are you going to gag them and not allow them to preach the gospel? Because they've received federal funds? That's my question. At this point, I'm a little skeptical. Because I'm seeing what's happening already, just a couple weeks into this administration. Do you know that there's a uh, clause in that uh, that pork spending, that uh, stimulus package? The, what is Limbaugh called? The porkulous package at this point? It's nothing but pork. That there's 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 provisions in there for monies to be given to universities and 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 schools for improving their properties and their buildings. But if a university takes money from the stimulus package to improve a building or to build a building, that they have to agree that that building will not ever again be used for religious groups and religious indoctrination.
in other words, let's say you're you have a small university and you improve your multi-purpose room, you know, and there's a church down the street or a church group that wants to plant a church at that university and they want to use that multi-purpose room. That if you took federal money from the stimulus package, that you would automatically have to say, I'm sorry, but you Christian church can't hold church services in this building, even though it's on a Sunday when no one else is using it. Important because whether it's a secular group advising families facing foreclosure or faith-based groups providing job training to those who need work, few are closer to what's happening on our streets and in our neighborhoods than these organizations. People trust them. Communities rely on them. And we will help them. We will also reach out to leaders and scholars around the world to foster a more productive and peaceful dialogue on faith. What? 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 We're going to reach out to people and foster a more productive dialogue on faith? How am I supposed to interpret that? You Christians in your insistence that Jesus is the only way for salvation, that's not very productive and doesn't foster unity among the other faiths. We're going to reach out to people and scholars who can move beyond that to something more productive. How do you how is he defining the the word productive in that sentence? I'm not naive. I don't expect divisions to disappear overnight, nor do I believe... Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't expect divisions to disappear overnight. So do you expect them to disappear over a couple of nights? Maybe a year? So is the agenda of the Obama administration to get rid of differences in religions? And foster a more so productivity is getting rid of divisions among the different religions, right? This is scary stuff. The long held views and conflicts will suddenly vanish. The work of Prime Minister Blair, the work of so many here, underscores how difficult it can be to overcome our differences. But I do believe so productivity is overcoming our differences. To what end? Oh, let me put the gospel away and this idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except for through him, because, you know, that would, that's not productive. It causes divisions. I believe that if we can talk to one another openly and honestly, and if perhaps we allow God's grace to enter into that space that lies between us, then the old rifts will start to mend. What? The old rifts will start to mend? We're called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching people to literally observe all that Christ has said and taught. That rift, I mean, that's what we're supposed to do, and that creates a rift with me and somebody who's a Muslim, you know, me and somebody who's a Buddhist, me and somebody who's a practicing Jew. How are we supposed to mend that rift? And why is it that somehow getting rid of those divisions is now somehow deemed productive? Productivity is a term that we get outside of in the business world, right? 
we look at companies and we look at what they're doing and we determine whether or not their workforce is productive. We measure their productivity, ensure that we're getting the most bang for our buck. There are people who make millions and millions of dollars who've come up with ways of implementing technology and best practice business solutions that improve productivity. Productivity you know, implies getting something done, getting something accomplished, accomplishing work. How is it that getting rid of divisions in, in, among religions is now considered to be productive? What's the work that's being done? And is this work conducive to the marching orders that we have from Jesus Christ? Who is more important than Barack Obama? That we are to go and make disciples of all nations. New partnerships will begin to emerge. In a world that grows smaller by the day, perhaps we can begin to crowd out the destructive forces of Excessive zealotry. Oh, who's the bad guy there? The the bad forces of excessive zealotry? How are we defining these terms? Are you defining the term of excessive zealotry as the uh, the imam who's declared a jihad? And those in Islam who are flying airplanes into buildings or putting bombs on planes or strapping a dynamite pack on their bodies and blowing themselves up in a crowded area? Is that what you're considering excessive zealotry? Or is excessive zealotry have a, a far broader definition and implies those who wouldn't be productive in getting rid of the old rifts and divisions between the religions because they insist that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And make room for the healing power of understanding. This is my hope. This is my prayer. So his hope and his prayer is productive according to his hope and his prayer. Ah, we're achieving his hopes and his... I believe this good is possible because my faith teaches me that all is possible. But I also believe because of what... Your faith does not teach you that it's possible to get rid of the divisions between the religions. That is, that's not within the realm of possibility. God cannot make a rock so large that he couldn't build it. That would be a logical impossibility. It's not considered productive in God's sight that we get rid of the divisions between the religions, especially when it comes to the fact that Jesus Christ claims that he is the only way of salvation. They are logically mutually exclusive. Saying that all things are possible does not mean that it's possible for people to be saved in Islam. It's impossible. They reject Christ and his death for them on the cross. What I have seen and what I have lived. You know, Prime Minister Blair shared a story of his awakening to his faith. Perhaps like him, I was not raised in a particularly religious household. I had a father who was born a Muslim but became an atheist. And grandparents who were non-practicing Methodists and Baptists. And a mother who was skeptical of organized religion, even though she was the kindest, most spiritual person I've ever known. 
She was the one who taught me as a child to love and to understand and to do unto others as I would want done. I didn't become a Christian until many years later when I moved to the south side of Chicago after college. And it happened not because of indoctrination or a sudden revelation, but because I spent month after month working with church folks who simply wanted to help neighbors who were down on their luck, no matter what they looked like or where they came from or who they... Oh, really? Church folks who were helping the poor? I thought church folks were out there with AK-47s uh, promoting prejudice and intolerance and killing people that they disagreed with. They prayed to. It was on those streets, in those neighborhoods, that I first heard God's Spirit beckon me. It was there that I felt called to a higher purpose, His purpose. In different ways and in different forms, it is that spirit and sense of purpose that drew friends and neighbors to that first prayer breakfast in Seattle all those years ago, during another trying time for our nation. It is what led friends and neighbors from so many faiths and nations here today. We come to break bread and to give thanks, but most of all to seek guidance and to rededicate ourselves to the mission of love and service that lies at the heart of all humanity. St. Augustine once said, Pray as though everything depend on God. And then work as though everything depended on you. So let us pray together on this February morning, but let us also work together in all the days and months ahead. For it is only through common struggle and common effort, as brothers and sisters, that we fulfill our highest purpose as beloved children of God. I ask you to join me in that effort. Um, I'm a fellow human. Um, uh, uh, through Adam and Eve, I can say that my other human beings are my brothers and sisters. Okay, But I cannot say they're my brothers and sisters if they're apart from Christ. <laughs> and I also ask that you pray for myself, for Michelle, for my family, and for the continued perfection of our nation. Pray for them and pray for the continued perfection of our nation. What did that sentence mean? The perfection of our nation? I'm not comfortable with that. Thank you so much. God bless you. So there it was. I wanted to play it in its entirety so that you can hear it in context. Yeah, maybe I'm off here, you know. But uh, I am I am not one who believes in works-based ecumenicism. Oh, we'll just put deeds, not creeds. No. I believe that true good deeds in God's eyes flow from correct creeds. Sound doctrine the proclamation of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel transforms somebody. They go from having a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, from being a goat into a sheep, from being an unbeliever to being a believer, to someone who thought that they were good to realizing that they were wretched and in need of a Savior, who trusts in Christ alone. And that from that living faith given as a gift by God, the Holy Spirit then begins producing good fruit in someone's life. 
and they can't help but produce that good fruit because of what they are and who they are in Jesus Christ. Deeds flow from correct creeds. He's preaching deeds that flow from who cares what your creed is. Because we're all somehow united according to the golden rule and according to the law. Yet it's the law that condemns us. It's not what unites us. It unites us in condemnation that all mouths may be silenced and shut. And the whole world held accountable to God. I want to bring another passage up real quick. And then we'll switch gears. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Again, pointing out the fact that he, we don't need President Barack Obama telling us from the bully pulpit that we need to not be intolerant or prejudiced or hateful. Um, Second Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. If you want to talk about hatred, you want to talk about intolerance, you want to talk about where the real problem lies, it's not in the Christian message. It's in man's hatred and intolerance towards God. Their abject hatred and despising of the one true God and refusal to worship him, to love, fear, and trust in him. And by nature, they cannot. And we've not been entrusted with a message of hate, but a message of hope. The message of the hope of the resurrection on account of Christ because of the forgiveness of sins won by him on the cross. And this passage says it. Our message as Christians is the ministry of reconciliation. I don't need President Barack Obama browbeating me regarding intolerance and prejudice. For I understand the scriptures that we all Christians, all of us, all y'all, are entrusted with the very message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the ministry of reconciliation, to call men to stop hating God and stop with their acts of terrorism against him and instead repent of their sins and receive from God this precious and outrageous gift of a full pardon won for them by Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. And I don't need Barack Obama browbeating me on the other stuff. Again, there's pro the problems there is the assumptions were way wrong. <sighs> Man. Aren't you glad you don't have to do a do-over? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You remember that from oh, uh, the 2007 Christmas sermon that aired on Fox News from Saddleback Church, the, the mulligan theory of the atonement, that God gives us all a do-over? No, he doesn't, because if God give you a do-over, that means you have to get it right the second time because you messed up the first. I, I'd screw, I'm going to screw it up the second time. <laughs> You're only on the second time? <laughs> I, I've lost track. <laughs> anyway, um, there it is. Um, I'd like, love to get your feedback. 
And you can uh, send me feedback at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to, we're going to read a, a news story because I think this uh, follows rather well the um, Barack Obama's sermon. What was that? My, my daughter called it a sermon, but I, you know, I, it was a speech. And in order to do that, we've got to play our vintage news music because if I don't, John will look at me like, where's the news music? Got the news music. Yeah, here, here we go. The headline here reads, um, I pulled out the wrong, the wrong one. Hang on a second here. Here we go. Bishop nominee in Episcopal Church holds Buddhist ordination. Why do I get the feeling that this guy is probably, Barack Obama would think this guy's made some progress in, uh, you know, getting, you know, smoothing over the old rifts and the divisions. Between. Now, I don't think Christ would, would really, he likes the, the uh, two citizenship theory on this one. Oh, man. Okay, so, all right, here we go. Uh, this is a uh, press release that was put up by Jeff Walton from the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Uh, Dateline Washington, uh, February 5th from the Christian Newswire. An Episcopal priest who has received a Buddhist lay ordination has been nominated for the position of bishop in the Diocese of Northern Michigan. The Reverend Kevin Thu Forrester, who has served in the diocese since 2001, will be the only nominee for that vacant position. Forrester currently serves as the rector of St. Paul's Marquette and is the diocese ministry development coordinator. The bishop's election is scheduled for a special convention to be held February 21st in Escanaba, Michigan. If elected, Forrester would still have to obtain consents from a majority of the diocese in the Episcopal Church in what is usually viewed as a rubber stamp procedure. Forrester is not the first Episcopal clergyman to hold dual faiths. Really? Dual faiths? It's impossible. Right. I cannot worship both Baal and Jesus Christ. Forrester is not the first Episcopal clergyman to hold dual faiths. In 2004, Pennsylvania priest Mark Melnick was received to be a Druid, uh, was revealed to be a Druid, while in 2007, Seattle uh, priest Ann Holmes Redding declared that she was simultaneously an Episcopalian and a Muslim. Both Melnick and Redding were eventually inhibited from priestly duties. Forrester's background was recently brought to light by the Anglican website Stand Firm in Faith. Um, the Institute for Religion and Democracy President James uh, Tonikwich uh, commented, so-called dual-faith clergy are hardly new to the Episcopal Church, which has in recent past had to deal with clergy that claimed Muslim and Druid faiths in addition to Anglicanism. To my knowledge, this is the first time that such a dual-faith practitioner has been nominated to be a bishop. Forrester has been identified by his former bishop, as walking the path of Christianity and Zen Buddhism together. While church leaders may respect other faiths, their vow of Christian ordination has always meant an exclusive commitment to Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. So there we have it. I wonder if Barack Obama would consider this to be progress on his definition, the way he used it in his uh, speech. Dual faith, that's absolutely impossible. Jesus Christ is the one true God in human flesh. He claims to be the God of God's word, so to speak. 
And God's word is clear that we are to have no other gods before him. None. No other gods. Not one. And Buddhism teaches a different god. Rather than the exclusive god of that, that being Jesus Christ. So he's not a Christian. He's a heretic. And my question is, why isn't the Episcopal Church doing the right thing and throwing this guy out? He has no business being in a pulpit, serving in a church, let alone becoming a bishop. Are we to assume that uh, you know that in this diocese, these uh, Episcopal churches will also have uh, Zen rock gardens for meditation, where you can practice contemplative uh, mysticism, focusing in on the uh, the virtues of Buddhism? This is idolatry of the highest degree, and it is disturbing to me that there is such a lack of biblical discernment in the Anglican Church, in the Episcopal Church, that they would tolerate this guy even for a minute. Ah, man. Really, really, really sad. Well, what we're going to do now is we're going to switch gears. We're not going to get to that Dark Knight sermon. There's just no way we can do it now. It's better for Friday. You think so? Oh, yeah. So we're... Again, I apologize. Those of you who've been emailing me really wanting to hear that Dark Knight sermon, I know that it's the relevant thing to do. And especially, especially in light of the fact that the Academy Awards are going to be here before you know it. And, you know, Heath Ledger, I mean, he, you know, posthumously, you know, he's probably going to win that award. You know that. You know. So, I mean... So we and and Dark Knight was like the one of the major grossing films of 2008 and it it right you know the DVD sales are like through the roof on this thing okay and so i mean it's imperative that we find find the christian teaching in in dark knight i mean if if we're going to be hip and relevant we got to do that so you know we'll do that tomorrow and i again i apologize to those of you who have been just anxiously awaiting that sermon like john <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, is tomorrow Friday? It is Friday. Okay, yeah, I should look at the calendar. Yep, today's Thursday. Uh, Tomorrow, I have scheduled... uh, My brother's going to be in the studio. This this should be interesting. Uh, My brother, uh, his name is Mark, and he lives in Florida, and he's going to be out here. And so I've invited him to come sit in on the program, and um, his commentary might be interesting. Uh, (laughs) We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Anyway, we've been reading our, uh, our working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and so we'll end up today's program in the Gospel of Mark. And again, this is not about my theological prowess. That's not it at all. I really, really feel for the people who are not hearing God's word on a regular basis from the from the pulpits. And and this this program is not just about tearing down; it's also about building up. If we're going to counter something as being false, then we've got to also proclaim the truth. And I have, there is no higher calling in the church than to proclaim God's word and to preach the gospel and to read God's word. And each and every one of us, in hearing these stories and familiarizing ourselves with them, we overcome biblical illiteracy and we become familiar with these stories in a way that we can teach others. And again, you'll notice as I'm going through these, I, I do some commentary, but for the most part, the text speaks and the text can speak. And if you are a mother or a father, a husband, you are called to teach your wife, your children, 
your friends, your family, God's Word. No better way to do it than to just open it up and start reading it. So we left off yesterday in, uh, at the end of Mark chapter 6, verse 52, and we're going to pick up today at verse 53. Good stuff coming up in chapter 7, by the way. Um, it says this, And when they had crossed over, uh, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized Jesus and ran about the whole region and, be- and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he came, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored Jesus that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched were made healed, were made well. They were healed. Amazing. You know, Jesus' ministry also includes mercy miracles for the poor and the sick and the dying and even the dead, right? It's an amazing thing, you know, that, you know, God, God has come to earth, God in human flesh among us, and the wages of our sin is death, and, and the, and Unfortunately, death doesn't come instantly for many of us. It comes in small steps. Sickness and disease and things falling apart, things not working anymore. Blindness. You name it all. And Christ in his mercy comes and heals. Now we read now in Mark chapter 7, that when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, when you keep this in context, you realize, wait a second, Jesus is healing people. People are just touching his, the, the hem of his garment, and they're being healed of their diseases. When Jesus comes to town, they're laying out their sick, and, and there's these amazing miracles occurring. And it's almost like you can hear Darth Vader's you know, theme song. Dun, dun, da, dun, dun, da, dun, 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 And when the Pharisees came to him. You know, it's like it, the, the music changes here, right? Here you got this beautiful thing that Jesus is doing. And then all of a sudden the music changes. The the, the tone turns dark. And now the Pharisees gathered to him <laughs> with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. And they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, they were unwashed. No. What? Jesus didn't teach that cleanliness is next to godliness? That the disciples were eating with dirty hands. Doesn't Jesus understand bacteria? <laughs> For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders and my mother as well. Okay. <laughs> Don't you come to the table unless you've washed your hands. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Okay, so they're baptizing everything. They're washing everything. These are clean people, right? So, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Dun, dun, da, dun, 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 dun. I can almost see Jesus just rolling his eyes going, Are you serious? <laughs> You're kidding me, right? I, I like the, the Jaws sound attract. Dun, dun. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're out, they're out for blood, right? 
Okay, now, this is an important segment segment of Scripture here. Why? Because so many Christians, they define traditionalism as attending a church that practices the liturgy. <sighs> Jesus has a far different definition of traditionalism. Traditionalism isn't where you come into a church and they have an organ and they actually have readings from the lectionary and things like that. That's not traditionalism. Listen carefully. Watch the passage. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Hmm. Traditions, the, the, the bad kind, are nothing more than man-made rules. Do not taste. Do not touch. If you're a true Christian, then you would never do X, Y, and Z. You would never dance. You would never. You would never. You know, name the thing, okay? And we are uh, we. It's Church Lady from Saturday Night Live. Could it be Satan? Right. Man-made rules, teaching as if they're the commands of God. And Jesus describes people who do those things as hypocrites people who honored God with only their lips and their hearts are far from him. And they teach the doctrines of men as if they're the commandments of God. Jesus continues, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Again, he's not talking about the fact that the Pharisees were using organs and and had lectionaries and 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 had you know people were standing up and then sitting down and then you know and they were being reverent in, in worship. No, he's talking about the fact that they've chucked the word, the commands of God, and replaced them with man-made rules. For Moses said, "Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die." But you say. If a man tells his father or his mother, well, whatever you would have gained from me is now korban, that means it's given to God. Then you no longer permit that person to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God. Let me explain this just a little bit here. Okay, let's just say that uh, your parents are getting old in age and you know, you're doing well financially and you had not so good of a childhood. Okay. By the way, did you notice that the commandment to honor your father and mother has no contingencies attached to it? If you have a good father and mother, then honor them. No, that's not what it says. Um, you have to honor your father and mother because of the position that they hold, literally the office that they hold. Whether they're rotten parents or not, and the reality is, is that all parents are sinners so, I mean, I, I've always worked from the philosophy. My goal as a parent was to put my son in therapy, my children in therapy. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But so here's the deal. Honor your, the scriptures are clear. The command of God is honor your father and mother. But let's say that you don't like your parents. And so, you know, you understand that God's word requires you to honor them and to care for them in their old age, especially in this culture, right? When, you know, you, you've gotten to the point where you can't work anymore. Your body's worn out. But rather than taking your parents in and caring for them in their in their dying days, you decide, you know what I'm going to do? The money that I would have used to support my parents in their old age, I'm going to give it to the temple. It's now going to become korban. So what happens is, is that, that the Pharisees set up a rule, well, oh, wait, the, the means by which that person would care for their parents, they've given it to God? 
Well, if they've given it to God, then they, they're now released from their obligation to honor their father and mother. Nice scheme, isn't it? It's awful. So Jesus, that's a tradition that they set up. And it contradicts, it's basically a man-made rule that supplants the word of God, the very commands of God. So thus, you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people again to him and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. For the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. <laughs> Coming back to an, an earlier point that we made last week, um, that is, is that uh, when Jesus told parables, it wasn't because he wanted everybody to know what it meant. And so the Pharisees heard Jesus talking and they thought, oh, well, Jesus is speaking in a parable and they better come and figure out what it means, right? They didn't get it. They heard him say it and they're sitting there scratching his head, their, their heads going, what did that mean? You mean we have to honor our father and mother even if we give Korban? Well, that's not what the Pharisees teach. Anyway, he called the people. All right, so he says, and so uh, let's see. And he, So Jesus said to them, verse 18, then you are also without understanding, kind of scolding the apostles here. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters in, it, it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach and then is expelled. Thus, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. I wonder what uh, Tony Jones would do with this passage. Because <laughs> he, uh, he denies original sin. Yet Jesus says, from out of the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, enver, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Um, any of you folks not touched by that list? I would prefer not to say how many things that hit me on because it shows just how wicked I am and it comes out of my heart it's not something in the environment it's not something in the water it's not it's not nature over nurture or nurture per se it's out of my heart these things come out of your heart these evil things come so Jesus says all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Take what Jesus just said there. This is the law. Preach lawfully. Out of your heart have come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. These things have all come out of your heart and mine, and they defile you. Ouch. Ouch. And see, the Pharisees, their stupid surface examination of the problem that was happening is, is that the disciples were eating a meal without washing their hands, and they were somehow being defiled by doing so. They missed the whole point. And what is Jesus doing with the Pharisees? He's showing them their own sin and showing them just how much they've missed the mark. 
And from there, Jesus rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's going to Gentile country. Tyre and Sidon, um, this is outside of Israel. Tyre and Sidon are pagan towns. Okay. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, and yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. This isn't going to go well. <laughs> Politically incorrect statement coming ahead. If you are, um, if if you are sensitive to politically incorrect statements, you might want to stop listening right now because Jesus is going to do something very politically incorrect. Jesus is entire in Sidon, and this woman who has a daughter who has an unclean spirit. Stop. Think about it. We can judge this woman, right? If she was, she's a pagan, and she deserves to have her daughter have this unclean spirit, then be demon-possessed. I bet you anything she didn't even realize that her daughter was playing with the Ouija board or messing with the occult or worshiping a false idol. Who is this Gentile sinner woman coming and daring to ask Jesus for anything? Right? Or did you miss the whole point of the previous passage? Out of the heart comes evil and wicked things. <laughs> okay. So, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrio-Phoenician by birth, and she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This was Jeff Noblet's sermon that was oh so good. Yeah, he just called this woman a dog. This would make headlines. Jesus would be shamed in front of the whole world if this happened today. This would be all over CNN. It would be all over the New York Times. Jesus calls Gentile woman a dog. It would be on YouTube. And people would be saying, that's it. I'm done with Jesus. What an unloving jerk. And yet, Jesus isn't unloving here. He's loving her. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yeah, I'm a dog. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go. The demon has left your daughter. This woman would not be shaken. Even though Christ was insulting her, she would not be shaken from him. You are my Lord. Yes, Lord. He calls her she calls him Lord. This woman actually has faith. Compare this to the Pharisees, who were all bent out of shape and torqued off because somebody didn't wash their hands. Yet Jesus comes and calls this woman a dog, and she still calls him Lord. And that's the work of the law and the gospel. The law is the servant of the gospel. It shows us our need for a Savior. And Jesus mixed no words here and yet gives her gives her a precious gift because of her faith and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon was gone he returned to the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Decapolis, by the way, is just a fancy Greek word that means ten cities. There were ten cities in that area. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. 
And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his finger into his ear and after spitting, touched his tongue. You know what? I'm going to come back to this tomorrow. We're going to touch this. We're going to touch this passage tomorrow. This is just a preview of what we're going to talk about tomorrow. And the reason why I'm going to talk about, I want to come back to this is I want to do a little bit of work on the means of grace. Notice that they wanted him, they wanted Jesus to put his hand on this guy and just say, hey, be healed. Instead, Jesus um, does something really gross. (laughs) Spitting. He touched his tongue. What's going on there? The junior high kids will love this passage. Oh, yeah, it's grody. Yeah. Yeah, that's an 80s term, isn't it? Grody. I think so. Yeah, I haven't heard that one in a while. To, to the max. Grody to the oh, max. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, we are at the end, sadly. We're at the end of another program, another broadcast of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard in today's program, uh, you can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. And I want to remind you all, that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we need your help to pay our bills. And believe me when I tell you, we don't have a mansion. We're even cutting our own expenses in order to make it so that uh, we can meet our needs. Uh, we need you to help. Fight. Go to FightingForTheFaith.com and click on the Donate button or Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 791-SJC, California, 92693. Until next time, God bless you. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>